I came across a collection of letters that children wrote to Santa. One said, Dear Santa, you did not bring me anything good last year. You did not bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. Sign Alfred. Another went like this. Dear Santa, there are three little boys who live at our house. There's Jeffrey. He is two. There's David. He is four. And there's Norman. He is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. But Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. (laughs) Kids write letters to Santa to try and maximize the Christmas haul, right? Apparently, it must be effective. Any guesses on how much was spent in America on Christmas last year? $720 billion with a B. Now, the purpose of quoting such figures is not to induce guilt, but to compare the cultural phenomenon of buying temporary gifts as a celebration for something eternal of God becoming man. The fact is, a lot of Christmases are focused in on one thing, but it's usually just one toy. Uh, Remember 1983, the Cabbage Patch Dolls? Okay? That was the It toy. Sold over 100 million units. One reporter said they don't walk, they don't talk, wet their pants, or grow hair. Most buyers can't express why this doll is so popular this year, and others can't explain why they want to buy it. And then there was the infamous 1983 Cabbage Patch Smackdown in Pennsylvania. It culminated with a store owner, manager, warding off crazed parents with an aluminum baseball bat. Uh, Remember Tickle Me Elmo? That was 1996. The Xbox 360 in 2005. Uh, Zuzu Pets in 2009. Frozen Dolls 2014. Uh, Hatchimals, I haven't heard of any of these until I found this, 2016. And LOL Surprise last year. The average lifespan of these toys is about the same amount of time that it takes for us to eat our Christmas dinner. It's the consumerism of Christmas that caused C.S. Lewis to say this. Four things he noticed about Christmas. It gives, on the whole, much more pain than pleasure. Number two, most of it is involuntary. All the men in the audience are saying, amen. Uh, Number three, things are given as presents which no mortal ever bought for himself. And number four, it's a nuisance. Now, that sounds like bah humbug, does it not? Well, it didn't start with C.S. Lewis. The Puritans, our early pilgrims, refused to celebrate Christmas. Martin Luther, the great reformer, abolished the Christmas festival, saying every Sunday there was enough celebration, but that such a habit like Christmas would be hard to break without some kind of radical reform. John Knox even piled on more. He forbade the celebration of Christmas because he called it idolatry. He said, well, that celebration is not in the Bible, and neither is our man-made hymns or organs. So he got rid of those two. Not good theology, but people listened anyway. My point is not to throw out Christmas traditions, but to consider why Christ's birth 
is often cast into the shadows. That maybe we can reevaluate anything that, that takes away from the glory and the wonder of the incarnation. I mean, we do live in a world, right, where there's a dark prince of this world who doesn't mind all of the hoopla as long as Christ is in the background. Consider the testimony of Scripture. Uh, here are a couple followers of Christ who wrote in their Gospels about the life of Christ, uh, some things that perhaps create the bullseye as to why Christ came. Uh, Luke said this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Of his kingdom. Remember that. Mark said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The writer of Hebrews said this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I don't know about you, but I wonder if we were to find out that all this was just not real, Jesus didn't really come to earth, would that really make a difference to people in how they celebrate? I mean, when there's three-quarter of a trillion dollars at stake, I got a feeling people are going to move on just like it was all real anyway, right? But all this celebrating would be just a lie if there was no incarnation. All the traditions would be just a, a sad joke. All the songs would be meaningless without God coming in the flesh. I mean, how can we bring peace and goodwill toward men without the peacemaker? How can joy come to the world without Emmanuel? We can't concoct happiness and meaning without some kind of substance. The British author Malcolm Muggridge said, I find myself more and more strongly aware that this is the true situation. The hope of man cannot be created through human agency and that a happy life as an individual or a satisfactory life collectively is the ultimate fantasy. Without God, it's a fantasy. If we were to really be honest, I suppose we could say that there is no Christmas celebration or tradition that is necessary in an absolute sense, right? I mean, the, the economic and, and traditional aspects could all be altered if, if we needed to or wanted to. However, there is a historical and theological necessity that cannot be altered. If the Son of God had not come to earth, there would be no hope for mankind, Ultimately, it's the only hope we have because our hope is not in education or politics, but if Jesus rose from the dead and he really did come as God in the flesh, that's where our hope rests. There would be no birth of the Son of God revealed, no sacrificial death on the 
cross, no resurrection. If that's the case, there's no hope. But it did happen. Eyewitnesses attribute to these things actually happening. Our faith is not a blind faith. And because it happened, we have hope here today, 2,000 years later. But it seems that with all that goes on in our culture and all the celebrations, the baby gets lost. A wealthy European family decided to have their newborn baby baptized in their enormous mansion. Dozens of guests were invited to the elaborate affair and all arrived dressed to the nines. After depositing their elegant wraps on a bed in an upstairs room, the guests were entertained royally and soon the time came for the the main purpose of the gathering, this infant's baptismal ceremony. Only one problem, nobody could find the baby. No one seemed to know. The child's governess ran upstairs and returned with a desperate look on her face and everybody was, was frantic until somebody realized they remember seeing a baby on a bed. The baby was on a bed, buried beneath a pile of coats, jackets, and furs. I mean, the object of the day celebration had been forgotten, neglected, and nearly smothered. The baby whose birthday we celebrate at Christmas is easily hidden under a pile of cultural observances. Maybe the question we should ask, where's the baby? Who's the baby? Perhaps the Christmas story just doesn't fit our idea of what happens when God comes to earth. The facts are that he was born in a stinky stable to a lowly peasant couple in an insignificant town in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. I mean, just think of, in our media-crazed society, how we would capitalize on a virgin birth today, right? I mean, it would be pay-per-view to watch that. But that's not God's way. The babe came to die a bloody death on a cross. Mary ran for her baby's life from a mad ruler. And it was only 30 short years, 33 perhaps, in which they finally caught up to him and they nailed him to a tree. I mean, the whole idea of God coming to earth, of of heaven mixing with this world, the, the combination of divine and human, all this seems so peculiar, does it not? I have a sneaky suspicion that if people were so mixed up and couldn't understand it then and had all their agendas going on then, don't you think it's a possibility today, now? How does one properly respond for an evasion from heaven? It was a man named John, John the Baptist, because he would baptize people, right? He came to the scene 
Before Jesus began his public ministry, it was a way to prepare people for Jesus. Now, the problem is he came at a time in which there was intense corruption within the religious system of Israel and, of course, within the political system of Rome as well. I mean, the religious culture, the political culture, they were hungry for power. When John the Baptist appeared to preach about the advent of the kingdom of God, he was doing so realizing that the kingdom of God was bringing in a set of values that were running against the culture, the religious establishment. I think part of the problems for us is that we think that that was what went on then. But my dear friends, I have a sneaky suspicion that child, that Jesus becoming man, it may not be properly understood today as well. I ask you this not to be a nuisance, but could it be that the comfortable Christianity passed off in America is also in need of a transformation, just like the religious establishment 2,000 years ago? I mean, the fact is, I think many people feel privileged to have grown up in evangelical. Doing that, we grow up with certain presumptions in a whole lot of different areas that don't necessarily equate with kingdom values. I mean, we, we feel like, you know, we're in the right club, so we're safe. It fit nicely within a, a cultural version of Christianity, yet for many there's been little change that corresponds to the values of the kingdom of God. I mean, if it blew up their worldview and their perspective then, I have a suspicion that it would do the same today if we really understood what following Christ was about and who that baby was. I mean, Christianity was birthed out of first century Judaism that felt it had this privileged status because of its past. Rabbinic theology taught that most Jews would be saved, except for maybe the worst of them, because of their descendants, because of their forefathers, because they were heirs on the coattails of those who came before them. They were children of Abraham. I mean, they got in. Now, the Gentiles, they were required to get baptized to show that, you know, they had the real thing. But then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he calls for Jews and Gentiles to get baptized. It's a way of saying, there has to be a change of mind, a a, a repentance. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a kingdom of God that you don't quite get. And you're being called as servants and as citizens of this new kingdom. These old ways of of measuring spirituality and, and measuring your relationship with God, they don't work. Now, as you can imagine, people were upset with this message. So they're asking John, they say, hey, what do we do? Luke 3, John responds. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That's not a great introduction to win the favor of your audience. 
who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now, remember, you, you have this thinking that was so politically motivated that wanted to get out of the, you know, uh, of the power structure of Rome and to do their own thing, to have control for themselves, and, and basically... John the Baptist and Jesus are coming with a completely different message. It's not about power or politics. What Jesus does is he he changes us from the inside out, and he brings in such a cultural perspective that it turns religion, and may I even add, it should turn evangelicalism on its head. We do not blow in as Christians into this culture thinking that we have, you know, power, control, and political clout, and we can throw our weight around. Jesus set a good example when he gave the disciples that last message. He came in with what? A basin and a towel. Serving, loving, giving, without fanfare. I mean, if you ever get confused as the kind of Christianity that we should be living as you look around in the culture, never forget a baby born in a stinky manger and that life of service that led him to a cross. You know, when Jesus preached his first sermon, it was in a synagogue in Luke 4, they drove him out of the place, first sermon. They could not stand what he had to say because he challenged their presuppositions. Let us not think that once we, you know, are in with Jesus, that at times we won't get upset. That at times we won't be challenged to the core. We cannot put Jesus in a a little box that makes it comfortable and manageable for us. That just can't happen because you know what? There are going to be times in which we read his word or or his spirit says something to us like, hey, if you really want to follow me, give away half your stuff. You got two tunics, give one away. See, it's at that point I think a lot of us will say, well, you know what? I would prefer the American brand of evangelicalism instead of this Bible stuff of Jesus. the baby in the manger, the Messiah who serves and gives his life as a ransom for many, shakes the rafters, and yet we go about our comfortable lives 
There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with God blessing us. But we realize we can, we can utilize all of that for the sake of the kingdom. That God has blessed us richly with, with relationships and goods and freedom. And we thank God for these things. He has blessed us. But we are living for the kingdom of God, not for the kingdom of earth. In fact, it blows the rafters off so much, it, it discombobulates us so badly that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was in jail and began to question after hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus whether Jesus was the real deal or not. He was questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And this was the guy who was to be the forerunner. That's how discombobulating it is. So John the Baptist, he sends a couple guys to go and talk to Jesus. And Jesus sends them back. We pick this up in, in Luke 7. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I could, I could preach a whole sermon on that last statement. Why does he say that? You will love the kingdom so much that the kingdom values you will embrace, and yes, I know it turns your world upside down, but you will love it because you learn that's where life is. Jesus is telling these two guys to go back to John and tell them what you've seen, that there is external evidence, there are miracles that have taken place. And that should let him know that because of these things that have gone on in the physical world, what I have to say about the spiritual world is also true. I am the Messiah. And my dear friends, I'd throw it right back at you, that what we do in this world that we know, the physical world, will either attest to what we say about the spiritual world or discredit it in how we live our lives. We don't give away a tunic, if we have two, to get to heaven. We give away half our stuff because heaven is in us. How else can we demonstrate that God is real? Jesus prayed in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. They will know, he was saying to his father, that you have sent me by the love that they share with one another. By the love that they have for their community. That's how they will know. Not that they can recite some verses. I mean, that's great. And that's, that's needed but it will come out in fruit. How can we demonstrate God is real? 
Well, it turns the politically hungry, power-mad religious establishment on its head, which is why people were so upset with Jesus. We love. We serve. We give away as much as we possibly can. That's how it's done. I had a staff member a couple weeks ago that came to me and said, hey, I don't think so-and-so is making enough money. Would you take pay from my salary to pay that person? That's service. That's love. That's who gets it. See, we don't present jobs for life to get to heaven. We present jobs for life because Jesus really cares about the people in Center City. We don't look through a lens that's political. We just see people who are hurting because Jesus would be there. Jesus would love them. Jesus would do all he could to help them. And we have a very practical way to do that. You got two tunics, give one away. I remember hearing a pastor that I met with in uh, Fellowship Bible Church at Little Rock, Arkansas. Robert Lewis was his name. I met with him and another man and they were trying to build a facility. And he said, well, I just think if we're serious about this kingdom of God stuff, I have to challenge my people. And I said, how? So he goes, I told him, if you got a boat, sell it. I go, what? You got an extra car you don't need, sell it. You got a house that's too big, sell it. Leverage that for the kingdom of God. Whoa, <laughs> that's bold, right? But we're talking about investment in eternity. And yes, it's bold, but it's also, I think, coming from a person who understands seriously that I'm not living for this kingdom here. Hmm. People will not know that Jesus is real because we flex our political muscle, because we have shiny and glittery buildings because there's smoke up on the stage. People are so impressed. A real, you know, manger scene with camels. I, man, God must be there. They got camels, right? Nothing wrong with any of that, but that does not equate into the movement of the Spirit of God. People will know that Jesus is real when we give and we serve so extravagantly we have no more to give or serve. We are, we are to the limit. And even then, it's more. I got, a, I got a little thing. That's all I got left, a little mite. The widow says, oh, that's all I got. I'll give it. It's not, a, it's not a matter of how much. It's in proportion to how much God has blessed us. You serve, you give, because that's the heart of Jesus, and that's the fruits. When I think about Christmas... I want to think more about that little baby in a manger. I want to think more about the brand of Christianity that I live. And I want to give my life for the poor, for the racial injustice, not because I am so politically connected, but because I think that's exactly what Jesus would do. Because he would simply, it, it would be the way that love would be expressed in this day. Now, 
Where are people hurting? What are the buttons in our society that are the hot buttons? And what would Jesus say to that? How would he respond to that? That's the kind of Christians we're to be. Loving well. Loving the least of these. Loving those that are cast aside. And then being honest about our own perceptions that are getting in the way of kingdom values. That's what I think of when I think of Christmas. And I think of going to the point of death. Going to the point of actual sacrifice. Giving up whatever it is that God says I need to give up. That's the kind of love that Jesus shared with us. And that's the kind of love that people who understand the kingdom and follow Jesus, that's the kind they express as well. And when I say that out loud to you, I realize that I have to look at my own life. Listen, Janet and I live in a nice home. We got two cars that are paid for. You know, we got grandkids. I love my life. I got nothing. I know I am so rich and blessed. I don't feel guilty for that, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for it either, that God has blessed you so much. We just thank God for that. But the point is now, how can we leverage that for the kingdom? And all this time that God has given us, I don't know how much time I have on earth, but I want to utilize that to make a difference and to love where it's needed most. Are you with me? Are you with me? Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Pray with me, will you?